All right, our passage today is Luke chapter 3, 1 through 20. If you guys want to open up your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 3. All right, if you're there, if you would stand with me and we'll read together. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went to all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. You may be seated. All right, so today we're looking at John the Baptist and his ministry. Right, John the Baptist, many of us know, is the one who came before Christ, the forerunner. He was God's herald, right? And he uses that reference from Isaiah 40, Right, saying, I am the one. I am the voice crying out in the wilderness. Right, and so today, John is essentially going to tell us that we must prepare for the coming king. Right, and then the question then becomes, well, how do we prepare for the coming king? Should I move this up? Down. I'm too loud. How's that? Good? So how do we prepare for the coming king? And John's going to show us. He's going to show us in two ways. First, there's repentance. And second, 
we receive. So first we repent, and second, we receive. And we're going to break that down today. Um, but as I was studying and preparing for today in this passage, I came across a statement from an early church father named Origen. And he said of this passage in Isaiah, I mean in Luke that's referenced Isaiah 40, he says, he says this, he says that the Lord desires to find in you a path by which he can enter into your souls and make his way. The Lord desires to find in you a path by which he can enter into your souls and make his way. And I thought that statement was so succinct and simple and beautiful, right? And that's what John is doing, right? He's going out into the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. He says, hey, the Lord is coming. He desires to find a path in you by which he can enter and make his journey, right? And so for us, if, if the Lord desires to find a path in us by which he can enter our souls and make his journey, then the question that we should ask is, well, where's this path, right? What's the path look like? Is it ready for the king? No, we all want to make sure that he finds it. Why? Well, I mean, he's the king of kings, right? This is Jesus, King Jesus. He's coming, right? He says, hey, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to your town. I'm coming into your heart. And John says, make the path ready for the king. So how do we prepare to receive him? How do we prepare to receive him? This is the question we're going to answer. So let's first look at repentance, right? It's repentance, and then we receive Right, so the illustration from Isaiah 40. Let's read that again, starting in verse 4. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So way back when in the first century, there were not paved roads well, they weren't very common, at least. Maybe in big city centers, but most, most everything was a trail in the back roads of small towns and provinces, right? Nobody had equipment to build roads. Nobody could. All the roads were treacherous, right? The erosion would erode away. The wagons would make deep ruts, right? Animals would be walking on them. People would be walking on them. They weren't fun, and they weren't by any means something that you would be excited to travel on. Unless, unless you were a king, then you had the resources to build roads, right? Or more likely an emperor. And so when a king or an emperor would start their journey, right? They would go out, but they would send before them heralds, right? They would send before them servants, engineers, right? Going to the towns where they were going to go and say, hey, make a way for the king, right? He's coming to your town. And everyone would get all excited and pumped up like, oh my gosh, the king, he's coming here, right? But the king would come and they would build a road. They would make the road even. They would make it straight. They would make it flat and level, so that the king and all of his entourage could come to your town, <clears throat> right? And back then, that took a lot of time and a lot of help. There were no backhoes, tractors, skid steers. But John here is not just talking about any king or emperor, right? He's talking about the ultimate king. If you look at the illustration from Isaiah, he shows us that it's not just boulders or rocks that we're moving, but mountains, right? It says every mountain must be made low. And it's not just small gullies and ravines, Right? But it's valleys. No earthly king, no emperor could fill in a whole valley or knock down a whole mountain. Right? But when we're speaking of King Jesus, this is what John is doing. He's showing to the people, hey, repentance first looks like a reality check. Right? This is who's coming. This is who I'm talking about. This is the king of kings who's coming in your town. He wants them to know just who exactly it is. 
John says, right? Look, there's one coming after me who is king and who is Lord, and we must recognize who he is. And the reality of the landscape of our hearts, we must also look at. And bring it down again just a little bit. Am I yelling at you guys? No. Okay. <laughs> is that good? Cool. <clears throat> so, right, we must first have a reality check. Repentance begins with a reality check, right? It's first saying, oh my gosh, right? We just sang a song, oh, come let us adore him, right? The king, right? The, that king. They would have known when referencing Isaiah 40, after chapter Isaiah 40, what comes next, right? The Lord of the word stands forever, and then it's God's chosen servant in Isaiah 42 or 43, right? So the Jewish people know when John's saying, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, making a way for the coming king, they know that that king is the Messiah, right? The anointed one, the one that all of Israel has been waiting for since the beginning, right? So there's the reality check of who's coming, and then also, what does the landscape of our hearts look like, right? Like Origen said, the Lord desires to find a path in us by which he can enter in and make his journey, right? The Lord wants to enter into our souls, and we have to ask ourselves, what does the path look like? What's in the way? I got to prepare it. The Lord wants to come, right? The King of Kings wants to come here, the Almighty One. So if we continue into verse 7, we're going to see how John um, very straightforwardly gives the crowds a reality check. Right? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is doing what? He's calling everybody out. He says, hey, you're all snakes, right? Who told you to flee from the coming of fire? What does a snake do when there's a field fire? It comes out of its hole, right? It flees. John's saying, that's you guys here now. You know, you're coming to flee because you know that the king is coming and you're coming to avoid the judgment, hoping to get a ritual washing and to be good. But he says, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance, right? Snakes are often associated with what? Evil, deceit, malice, poison, cunning, God's enemies, right? Who was the snake in Genesis? Satan. And John says, you are God's enemies. Look at you. You can't flee. So John is uh, not mincing any words. He's very straightforward and very severe, right? And John sees into the secrets of their heart, and he recognizes that their repentance is shallow. There is no fruit. And that some of them are leaning on their heritage as children of Abraham, right? But that's not enough. John is saying, look, your hearts aren't ready. You're not prepared. If you don't bear fruit in keeping you with your repentance, you'll miss the king when he comes. You won't recognize him. And you'll be what? You'll be thrown into the fire. And like the crowds before us who perhaps leaned on Abraham in hopes to escape judgment that it would get them through, we too need that same reality check. What kind of things are we leaning on? Right? Like Paul says in Romans, if grace abounds, do we sin all the more? Are we just leaning on grace? Like, ah, oh, it's all right, God will forgive me. No, absolutely not. Right? Paul says, show me your faith by your works. Show me your repentance, John says, by a changed life. Show me the fruit. Right? To the depth that we, are, that we realize how incredibly flawed and sinful we are is the depth to which we recognize our desire and need 
for Christ. How much more beautiful does Christ become in the light of the reality of our sinful selves? Right? John is saying, you guys, you have to look at the landscape of your hearts. You have to see what's there. He's there to convince the people. Look in your hearts. It's not good. The king's coming. You've got to prepare. Right? And this is what makes the good news such good news. Because seriously, there's a temptation in our world today as a witness to the world and as a church, as a witness to the world, right, to maybe pitter-patter and tread lightly around the reality of sin and evil in the world as humans. And probably for some good motivations, right? We don't want to just Bible-thump people when they come in here and just call them sinners, you know? That's not what we do. That's not loving, right? But still, we can't not preach a gospel without recognizing sin. Right? What good is grace without sin? What good is redemption without needing to be redeemed? And how good is the news of Jesus Christ? How is the good news of Jesus Christ good news without the recognition and the reality check of repentance? Right? Of saying, look, there's sin and evil in the world and in our hearts. We need saving. I need somebody who can cleanse me. Right? So if we don't preach a proper doctrine of sin... Alongside a proper doctrine of grace, we don't preach the whole gospel. And how much more powerful is our witness to the world if we spell out the wickedness of our own ways and then cast all of that into the light of the glory of God's love and grace and what he did through Jesus Christ? Right? Tim Keller often says that our sin goes deeper than we could ever know, and yet God's love is far greater than we could ever hope. We have to recognize the reality of our sin. And that's what John's doing to the crowds that are coming. He says, look, I'm here to prepare the way. The Lord desires to find in you a path by which you can enter into your soul and make his journey. We must prepare. And that preparedness is repentance. The repentance starts with a reality check. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I found this true to be in my own life. There's been many times, even as you know, somebody who has, a lot of us have received Jesus here and we know Christ is king. Right? But I'm sure there's been times in our lives, I know for me this is true, where I'm going along in my spiritual life and there's some roadblocks or something I'm hitting over and over again. Right? I'm like, man, this is, what is going on here? And God starts to point out to me, he's like, hey, look, you know, we, I want to go with you there, I want to journey with you there, but we need to deal with this first. We need to understand and see what this is before we can move on. Right? And... Um, a quick story, I was, when I was becoming a Christian, there was about a three-month period where I was going to church, going to Bible studies, and praying, learning how to pray. And uh, the one thing I would pray the most was, God, I, I wish, I pray that you would reveal yourself to me. Would you reveal yourself to me? I want to know who you are. I want to see you. Right? And so I was praying this for a few weeks, and I went to sleep one night, and I had this crazy dream, insane dream, right? And I knew... I woke up in this dream, and everything was blue in this house that I was in. And I knew it was my house, right, because I love the color blue. It's kind of funny. And everything was a shade of blue. Everything was just, it was like had this magical presence, this magical aura to it. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. And I'm just doing my thing in my own house, walking around. And I, uh, I make my way out into the living room, and I'm just enjoying, like, the beauty of what's happening in this cool blue house. And all of a sudden, I hear, like, a, a knock at the door, and I immediately shudder because I know who's at the door and I hide behind the couch that's in the room and I'm like oh my gosh like what's that you know and I'm like kind of peering up and my front door is like it's so vivid I still remember to say the front door is like it was a half solid door and the other half was windows up above and you could see the silhouette of a man standing there 
the guy who knocked, and I knew exactly who it was, you know, but I was at the same time terrified, but I was also extremely excited because I knew that that was Jesus. You know, and I woke up from the dream right then, and I was like, oh my, like, whoa. And, you know, as the Lord would have it, a couple days later or a week later, somebody was preaching in Revelation, and they came across, you know, they're reading through the scripture, and it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know. I was like, what, are the, what the heck, you know, and that was God. Like, I had been preparing, you know, in those weeks and months, I had been learning who God is. I had been learning about my sin. My Holy Spirit was convicting me of my sin, and it was bubbling up, and I couldn't keep it down anymore. You know, I was praying to God. I was like, God, would you come reveal yourself to me? And, you know, here's this dream, you know, and he comes. And that's the king standing at my door, knocking, you know, as I was preparing the way. I heard that he was coming. <clears throat> so we have, John says repentance, right, is the way that we prepare for the coming king. That first looks like a reality check, and then what that looks like is ownership, right? If we are to prepare the path for the Lord who desires to come to us, we must own our sin as ours, right? We must recognize that we are guilty before God because it's way too easy and it's way too common for us to be confronted with our sin and to escape the accusation by doing what? Pointing the finger, Right? What happened in Genesis with Adam and Eve? Right? God comes to Adam and said, why'd you eat the fruit? Well, the woman gave me did it. You know? She did. It's her fault. If we don't point the finger, then we just avoid the problem. Right? Once we're confronted with the reality of our sin, it's seemingly an easy solution just to kind of turn around and look away. Right? But if you've ever tried to do that as a Christian, we know that that is not the easiest way. That, in fact, becomes probably the most treacherous and hardest way is to avoid your sin, right? Because being on this side of the resurrection with the Holy Spirit, right, the Holy Spirit won't let us go. But we can still deaden our conscience, right, to the Holy Spirit's voice. We can deaden that voice over time and time and time and bury it deep down, you know, and try to forget that it's there. But, man, that is a lot of work, right? That is not the yoke of Jesus Christ that is easy so in this passage, though, we have a great example of two responses to John calling out people's sin, right? To look at this concept of ownership. <clears throat> Notice the response from the, from the crowds when, after, John reproves, after John reproves them. What do they ask? They ask, what then shall we do? In verse 10, right? And the tax collectors, they came, they get baptized by John, and they say to him, teacher, what shall we do? And then the soldiers, they come and get baptized, and they say, how then shall we live? What should we do? Right? And I think that's evidence of a heart who has heard the conviction, right? Who has had the reality check of sin. They've taken ownership, and now they say, okay, now what do we do? How do we live? I want to prepare for the king that is coming. And then the other example in contrast to that is Herod. We know that John was publicly condemning and reproving Herod for his immoral behavior and unjust ruling style, just like he was reproving the crowds, right? John wasn't partial. He was the same to everybody and telling them the king was coming. And Herod's response, what was Herod's response to John's reality check? <clears throat> you can read in verse eight, uh, what is that? 18. So with many exhortations, he preached the good news to the people, but Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, Herod was sleeping with his brother's wife. It gets really messy. And for all the evil things that Herod had done, and he added this to them all, he locked John up in prison, right? Herod said, hey, shut up. I don't want to hear that anymore, right? I'm going to lock you in prison. 
I don't want to have to hear you tell me about my sin. I don't want to have to look at the reality and recognize, well, how deep does that hole go? And this is common. I mean, we live in a culture today where everything's about, you know, tolerance. Everything's about, well, you have to accept what I do. And if you don't, you know, you're a bigot or you're closed off, you're closed-minded. But this isn't something new, right? Nobody is like the claims of Christianity. Nobody likes to be necessarily confronted with their sin. Nobody likes to see it up close and personal. Nobody really wants the reality check, right? The truth can be hard to swallow sometimes. But right, as Christians and our witness to the world, like we can't, we can't not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without saying, hey, first, we need to look at the sin. We need to take ownership of it, right? And after we take ownership of it, there's the third thing that's required in repentance, and that is the fruit. John says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, right? What are those fruits? Let's look in verse 10. The crowds ask, what shall we do? John answers them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. What is that? That's mercy, right? That's compassion. That's a repentant and changed life and heart that has seen the reality of their unjust ways and unmerciful ways. And has said, man, I'm going to take ownership of those things and now I'm going to do justice and mercy, right? And the tax collectors, they come and say, teacher, what do we do? And he says, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Right? Tax collectors were known for what? Taking a little off the top, charging an extra fee to make some extra money. And the soldiers, they come. Right? And they say, now what do we do? John says, hey, don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. What's that? That's justice. Right? He said, be just. Make the crooked way straight. Right? These are, what the, these are the good fruits of repentance. This is what John is saying. Don't just give me lip service, right? Don't just come to be washed ritually, right? No, bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. So we've seen that John has told us, right, what repentance looks like. If we want to prepare the way for the coming king, right, the Lord desires to find a path in us by which he can enter into our souls and make his journey. John says we need to prepare, and that looks like repentance, right? And that begins with a reality check, taking ownership of our sin, and then having the justice and mercy, the works associated with repentance. Right? But you might say, oh, hold on, I thought the gospel of Jesus, I, we didn't have to do anything. I thought it was all by grace that we've been saved. And I would say, yes, of course it is. Right? We are saved by, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, 100%. But it's our repentance that allows us to even want to meet Jesus, to even want to be excited about this king that's coming. Right? Because our repentance recognizes that we need a Savior. We need that good King to come and cleanse our hearts and do what only He can do. Because without repentance, you wouldn't need Him. It wouldn't matter. You wouldn't care. Okay, the King's coming. So what? Sounds good. Maybe I'll see Him. Right? We have to get the order of operations right. It's first Christ initiates. He desires to be with us. Right? He says, I'm coming to your town. I'm coming to your heart. I'm coming to you. Right? And then we respond, therefore, by preparing for that. Like, okay, King Jesus is coming. Let's get ready. Let's prepare the way. Let's move the boulders. Let's humble ourselves. Let's do, just, let's do justice. Let's love mercy. Right? This isn't about just putting a lipstick on a pig or cleaning up the house or sweeping the roads so they look nice so that maybe 
Jesus will say, okay, cool, I'm, I'll accept you, and you know, now I'll come. You've done enough, right? No. We all know that's not the gospel. Our repentance is the response to God's invitation. And think, who's going to recognize the king when he comes? The one who heard the news, repented, and is preparing for the king's coming, or the one who heard the news, hasn't repented, and isn't prepared? Will they even recognize Jesus when he comes? Right? They haven't been doing justice or mercy. He's going to come teaching the same things John taught, more in-depth, you know? And if they haven't repented and recognized who this king is, they're not going to notice him. And so this brings us to our second point. John said we must prepare for the king, and we must repent, and then we must receive. All right, well, what are we receiving? And I thought we just had to do all this stuff. You just told me a bunch of stuff I got to do. And I say, yes, that is, that is our work, right? We come, the Lord says, I'm coming. We repent and we bring that to him. We say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I can see that. And I know that hole goes really deep, you know? And we invite Christ in, right? He's invited us to him. We have to prepare in order to receive. Or else we won't and wouldn't want what Christ and what only he can distinctly give to us. And that's the Holy Spirit, right? In verse 15, it reads, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Right? Jesus is coming. John's baptism is a sign pointing to Jesus' baptism that is coming. Right? And the people in this day would have been familiar with the word baptism, but they wouldn't have been familiar with the idea of being baptized by another. Right? Jews were totally aware of ritual cleansing and washing themselves and, and running water and rivers in order to purify themselves so they can worship God, because right? you have to come to God pure, and you have to make, there has to be a sacrifice for sins, right? And, and uh, converts to Judaism would have to go wash themselves and immerse themselves in water. But it was always done by themselves, right? But John's baptism was one of the first times that people are, John's saying, hey, no, this has to be done for you, by another. And I'm showing you the way. You have to receive this baptism. This isn't something you can do. John told us that in order to prepare for the coming king, we must repent and receive. Right? The baptism that Christ brings, we cannot do for ourselves. There is no amount of washing that would cleanse the heart of men, no amount of preparation and repentance on our part that could take place for our hearts to be made clean. Right? What does the Holy Spirit do? A footnote in my Bible says, The purpose for which Christ dispensed the Spirit is unmistakably represented as the cleansing of the heart. The distinction of Jesus is indeed made to lie precisely in this, that whereas John could baptize only with water, Jesus baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right? The Holy Spirit is coming to cleanse our hearts. Isn't that what we all want? A heart pure before God, to be made righteous? Right? And all the washings, ritual washings in Judaism of having to wash yourselves and your hands constantly, you know, to be made pure. And Jesus is giving us a baptism with the Holy Spirit that will once and for all make us clean right? Because of the sacrifice of Christ. And that is the good news. We, repair, we prepare ourselves to receive what only Christ can give. If we don't prepare, we wouldn't want what he has to give. 
Our repentance, our repentance leads us to see our deep need to be cleansed by him. Craig, you can come on up. <clears throat> so we've seen from John, in order to prepare for the coming king, we must repent, right? And that looks like, hold on, we need to look at our sin. We need a reality check. Second, we need to own that sin. And third, we need to keep, or we need to bear fruit in keeping with our repentance. And then we receive, right? We receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We receive only what Jesus can give. There's nothing that we can do. So we do this repentance and we do this work and then we wait and we wait in expectation for the king who's coming, right? In joyful expectation. Just like Origen said, right? The Lord desires to find in us a path by which he can enter into our souls and make his journey. And so for us today, perhaps you haven't received Christ as your king, maybe you have, right? But you have to receive him as king into your life. And you have to recognize your sin or else you won't want the king to come into your life. You won't, want the, you won't want the salvation. You won't want the cleansing of the spirit. Right? And you have to wait. Christ is going to come and bring only what he can bring and do what only he can do through his Holy Spirit and cleanse our hearts. And if you are Christians, you know, there's still the question of like, okay, God, how can I continue to prepare for you to do the work that you're doing in my heart? Right? What's the landscape of my heart look like right now? What's in the way? What's stopping you from making your journey into my heart? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I just pray that you would show us all the landscape of our hearts by way of your Holy Spirit that we may see clearly. God, that we would own our sin and that we would bear fruits. God, and that there would be rejoicing in knowing that you are going to clean us. God, you're going to continue to work in us by way of the power of your Holy Spirit and your Son, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.